Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Greetings, pod pickers. It's Tony Blackburn here welcoming you to the Reasons to be Cheerful Top 10 Ideas of the Year. What's going up? What's going down? And what's a non-mover? Handing over to your esteemed hosts, it's Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Take it away. Well, here we are again. That must be Tony Blackburn, which only means one thing. I mean, it's so nice of him to re-record it for this year, isn't it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so close to how he's done it the previous five I'm years just, as I well. Mean, it's just pitch perfect every yeah, time. What a pro. What, what a pro. What an absolute pro. That poor man. He didn't know we were going to keep reusing it in perpetuity. Exactly. Well, that must mean one thing. It's the ha- cheerful countdown of the year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Although it's... 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th. The in-between 31st, days. The in-between days. Of December. Like last week, we were guiding them into Christmas. We're ahead of the curve. We are. We're, we're guiding you yeah. into 2023 with and a look a tradition back. now, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. How many years do you think it takes before a tradition sticks? I don't know. I four. Is this fourth? I think we're five here, aren't we? Did we do it from the first year onwards? I can't remember. Maybe we didn't. I remember last year. No. I don't remember last week. Oh, no. Um, but we are counting down our favourite cheerful moments yes. of 2022. And there is some controversy this year, I'd say. You think? Well, because I think we have given some guidance on the top 10, I think it's fair to say, or at least I have. Yes, I've washed my hands of the whole story. you wash your hands. I, but it is Rachel Barmer who has done the actual curating. chart. Curating. No, well, but not just the curating, but the, the chart position. This is like, well, this is like when I used to work on a radio station and they'd spend a month asking the listeners for their favourite songs and then on a punk holiday, count down the hundred favourite songs of all time, but then just choose the ones they were going to play anyway and put those in the top ten. <laughs> is that true? Yes. 
<laughs> they didn't pay any attention to the listeners. I mean, they'd have a look a bit of a look at it, but you know, if it was something they weren't happy to play, it, it wouldn't go in there. I mean, we we they need bow wrap at I number mean, one. We are we are advisory when it comes to these chart. Positions. I want to emphasise positions. Absolutely. I, f- I feel we. Well, need- Rachel also suggested the particular yes. entries, but yes, it's a curated. It's basically top Rachel. It's, it's a curated top. It's Rachel's yeah. top ten. I am going to be calling for a recount every so often, just so you know. Great. That won't be exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to you derailing things. Right. Should we get going? Yeah. Into the top ten then. At number ten. It's cheaper to save the planet than destroy it with Kingsmill Bond. He's an energy strategist at the Rocky Mountain Institute. And and you did try and draw him on the matter of his name. The name's Bond. Kingsmill Bond. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, he didn't bite, though, no. because his brain is uh, filled with much more important things, like the future of the planet. And he's heard it all a, a million times And before. we shouldn't blame him for that. Um, but I really thought it was one of the most positive climate episodes we've done. Kingsmill is a fantastic advert for the future of renewable energy. He makes... He's really... Ma- his... PowerPoints have made me one of the things that's made me feel most optimistic in 2022. I mean, that is the kind of guy I am, that some PowerPoints can make me optimistic. But honestly, his PowerPoints have been one of my highlights of 2022. And the fundamental point he makes is it's now more expensive to keep digging up and burning fossil fuels than it is to transition to renewable energy, the cost of which has massively reduced as governments have invested in it and, and helped with the private sector to deploy it at scale. To be honest, I think this could easily have been my number one, but Rachel Barmer puts it at number 10. So just to orient the whole conversation that we're going to be having on the podcast this week, talk to us about where you see, just a big picture summary, where you see the race, if you like, between fossil fuels and renewables and where that is going. Sure. So the the big picture summary is that the the last decade has seen an extraordinary collapse in the cost of key renewable energy technologies and solar and wind and batteries. And at the same time, spectacular exponential growth of those technologies. So that two things have happened. First of all, they've got big enough to matter. And secondly, they've fallen into the same price bracket or below the price bracket of competing fossil fuels. So so that's kind of what's happened in the last decade. And then you kind of get this pivot point around 2019, where you get a peak of the fossil fuel system. And now this decade to come will really be the pivot decade where all this stuff is deployed at very large scale and and where it becomes increasingly obvious that the, the peak of the fossil fuel system is behind us. That's a kind of, that's a very big picture story of, of what's going on here. And one thing that when I saw your presentation, I was incredibly impressed by was you know, this just a scale of falls in the cost of renewable technology. So back in about 2012, so a decade ago, solar would have cost you about $300 per megawatt hour. So in UK terms, it's about 30p per kilowatt hour. And now the wholesale cost has fallen to about $40 per megawatt hour. So again, in UK terms, about 4p per kilowatt hour. So a collapse in, in the price of, of um, solar but but also you know batteries batteries gone from $1000 per kilowatt to about $200 wind has gone from $200 to about 40 as well so that collapse as i say kind of underpins the opportunity that's now being unleashed and i think i'm right in saying that for 90% of the world now and correct me if i go wrong here new renewables are cheaper than new fossil fuels and for 50% of the world new renewables are cheaper than existing fossil fuels. Is that right? 
Yeah, both those statistics come from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And in fact, actually, of course, since they did their analysis, we've had Putin's war and the cost of fossils has gone up. Um, so it's going to be close on 100% now. And when it comes to new versus existing, it's going to be considerably higher than half the world. Episode 271 at number 10, and we're on to number nine. It's a new entry. I mean, I'll be honest, they're all new entries. <laughs> um, for episode 254. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, things can only get better. Oh. I thought you might be in the mood yeah. for singing us a bit yeah. of that. No? Yeah. No. No. Professor Brian Cox, um, one of our summer episodes this yes. was. Um, and we almost had to rename the podcast Reasons to be Existential, as we had quite a collection of deep and meaningful conversations with big thinkers like uh, Oliver Berkman, George Monbiot, and the legendary Brian Cox. And I, I could see your mind expanding as he, he talked. I know. You were really... Uh, yeah. It was starting to boggle, wasn't was it? was boggling. And it was a great episode because we, we didn't just talk about uh, science and astronomy and astrophysics, but we also uh, talked about his career as a pop star and, and how his band's hit, Things Can Only Get Better, was entwined with New Labour's election victory in 1997. We had a great anecdote, as I think the best interviews always do, about climbing into a VW Golf through a window and getting stuck in it after a gig. And the bit that struck me the most was a strong link to the climate crisis and what he was talking about. He said that if we're the only life in the galaxy, if we destroy planet Earth, we effectively destroy the concept of meaning forever, which is what he discusses in this clip. The show is about exploring nature in that depth, and in particular, very exotic things such as black holes. But another level, I think cosmology always raises questions that are not scientific in nature. It raises questions about our place in the universe. I mean, just the, the statement, so I can just say it, what we've discovered, we, we are one planet around one star amongst 400 billion stars. 400 billion in one galaxy amongst two trillion galaxies oh my goodness. in the small patch of the universe we can see. That's what we've discovered in these hundred years or so of doing cosmology. How's your vertigo doing, Ed, with that statement? Vertiginous. One of my great heroes, Carl Sagan, said astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. So the humbling is easy. <laughs> we've just done it, right? It's humbling. Character-building all the way through the show, there's a thread, there's a 2001 element to it, actually. It's how we came to be here and what we can become. There's a political element to this. What could we become on Earth? What is our responsibility? And actually, I also argue in parallel in the show, and this is where the character building comes in, that knowing what we know about the evolution of life on Earth, it's a reasonable guess that the number of civilizations like ours in a typical galaxy might be around one one-ish, non-one, something like that. So it follows that we might be it. In this galaxy of 400 billion suns, this planet might be the only planet where collections of atoms have come together in patterns, that's us, human beings, that can think and can feel and can, in a very real sense, bring meaning to an otherwise meaningless corner of the universe. And so that's the twist. That's the character-building bit so notwithstanding our physical insignificance, we might be astonishingly valuable because of our rarity. But 
that meaning in a sense is perhaps only important in the context of it being a facet of our consciousness. If everything is just a bunch of chemical reactions and then the consciousness that we have is a weird facet of that, the the meaningfulness or otherwise of it is in some ways unimportant and then in other ways it's the most important thing in the world because what else have you got? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think um, meaning, I'm using it in in a very simple sense, right? I think meaning is a product of things like brains, right? You need thoughts. You need something that can think in order to have meaning. So if this is the only planet for thousands or even millions of light years in every direction where that has happened, then this is the only place where meaning exists for thousands or even millions of light years in every direction. And I actually said this at COP26, by the way. I, I was asked to give a, a little intro for the world leaders. That My brief was, if you've got one thing that you'd like to tell them, what is it? And I said this. I said, that if, you know, if, if through deliberate action or inaction, or a combination of both, you eliminate this civilization, then you probably, in my view, eliminate meaning in a galaxy of 400 billion suns, potentially forever. So that's... Have a think about that. That's responsibility. Well, and I think it's actually real. I don't think that's just rhetoric. At number eight, it's our episode about the 50th anniversary of Newsround, entitled Watch All About It, News for Children as Newsround Turns 50. And Jeff, we had a very, very, very special guest on the show. Now, if you didn't hear the episode when it was released, I just want to uh, manage expectations and say you're not about to hear from John Craven. Yes. And I also want to point out, as you have, that Rachel curated this. I wasn't responsible because this, this looks a lot like nepotism, I understand. Yes. Because... Well, it would have been number one if it had been nepotism. Tr- true. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You've got yeah. to give him something to aim yeah. for. Because yeah. I talked to my son, Gene. He'd started watching Newsround and I wanted to ask him about what he liked best about it at age six. But really what we hoped to do with the episode was explore the impact that the news has on children and how Newsround and other forms of children's news media played a really important role in communicating current affairs, difficult ideas yeah. or distressing situations, you know, having just uh, been through the pandemic to a younger audience. I recorded a little chat with my son, Eugene, who is five going on six. And he's a natch. What is... <laughs> News round. It's something where you learn about things. What things do you learn about? Ukraine or something private ship. What bits do we like that happens at the end of news round? The cute animals. We really like the cute animals. And um, why do you like news round? I sometimes like their jumpers and trousers. They do have good jumpers and trousers. Is there one presenter on news round who you like the best? I would say I like them all medium. How does it make you feel? If they're talking about something serious or sad like Ukraine and how people's lives are at the moment. Worried and scared and frightened. And what do the people on Newsround, what do the presenters help you do with that? Learn. And does it make you feel a bit less worried and understand it a bit more? Yes. And do you ever think you'd like to do things to help people? Yes. What like? Be a part of the Bird Society. Let's be a part of the Bird Society. And what about for people in Ukraine? Do you think we should do something? I know something. Mm. Instead of using writing, we could talk our way through it instead of writing. Who would we talk to? Talk to Russia and then maybe when we found a way, 
to make a nice suit should I make a living piece? That sounds like a great idea. Without writing because writing's me. Now, I know you're very interested in saving the planet. Yeah. Can you tell me about what things to do with the environment would you like to see on Newsround? Maybe if persons who don't know how to make bird feeders, maybe you could tell them to get bird stuff and then you could tell them how to make one. Is there anybody that you would like to see them interview on Newsround? Oli Akazander. Oli from Years and Years? Yes. Why do you like him? He has calm music, what I'm getting into. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody to do with nature or saving the planet that you'd like to see interviewed on Newsround? The birder. The urban birder? Oh, well, he's going to be on our podcast next week. But who who do you think, if you think of all the people you've learned about, who are, who are the great ones for helping save the planet? David Bowie. David Bowie? <laughs> No, David Attenborough. David Attenborough. Okay. Greta Thunberg. And Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Anyone else? Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall. Okay, so what would you like them to ask those people? I want to ask tell us how Jane Goodall's learnt how they made tools. The monkey's making the tools. Yeah. Mm. Can I show you something on my phone? I just want to show you a little video. Again, a cartoon poster warning people of the dangers of fireworks has started a storm of protest. Yeah. Do you want to know what that was? What? That... Silly peanut. No, it's not silly peanut. <laughs> that is what Newsround looks like when me and Ed were kids. What? Uh... The Newsround is 50 years old this month, and that's what it looked like when Ed and I were little about 40 years ago. <laughs> so I want to know... How cute. I want to know, what do you think of what Newsround used to look like? Boring! <laughs> now, what would you like to see more of in Newsround? More cute animals, more, more cute, cute animals, animals, more, more cute. cute animals. And finally, why do you think it's important for kids to learn about the news? It teaches them on the holidays and in the morning. Then they can learn and then they can be on news round. Well, Eugene, thank you for coming on our podcast. Have you got anything you want to say to our listeners before you go? Ciao. Be honest with me. Do do you think that I've passed my gift on in his genes? Definitely. Hundred <laughs> percent. That was our news round episode, episode number two hundred and thirty eight, at number eight, and at number seven. All Roads Lead to Rome, making nature accessible to everyone. I really enjoyed this episode, despite the fact that it was one of the ones where you were largely AWOL. I know that you listened back to it and we had an interesting conversation despite, about... Despite, 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 yes. despite, despite, despite. I said despite, yes, not because of. Because? No, I didn't. No. I mean, why would I have said despite if I meant because of? <laughs> um, and I especially enjoyed this conversation with Nick Hayes. He lives on a boat. And I harbour a, not a fantasy, harbor. but <laughs> I have this idea in my head that when, when my life in, inevitably yes. falls apart. A port, yeah. I'll go and live <laughs> on a boat. Do you fancy it? Not life on the ocean way, but on a, on a barge, maybe. I don't fancy living on a barge with you, no. <laughs> not here. after you've said that you enjoyed the episode more because I wasn't there. Uh, anyway, the uh, the Right to Roam campaign are calling for responsible access to greenbelt land, waterways and woodland. And here Nick tells us about some of the history behind the campaign and some of the countries we could learn from. 
England specifically fares particularly badly on this, and we'll we'll come on to other parts of the United Kingdom. But we we only have access to Rome on eight percent of our land. A third of the land is still owned by the aristocracy. What is the background to all this from a historical perspective? This this mindset. In two words, I guess, it's hierarchy and hunting. It was William the Conqueror who came over and uh, started to enclose these great swathes of uh, what we used to call common land, areas of land that were were owned by sort of Thane or an earl, but they were allowed to be used by all of the people that relied upon them for like winter fuel or for taking your pigs or cows to pasture. Common lands effectively used to... Uh, be the welfare state before a welfare state was necessary. You could be poor, but you could be subsistent. But William the Conqueror came along uh, and decided that he needed huge swathes of land basically to breed deer so that him and his chums could uh, hunt them for pastime. So you no longer had the right to subsist off your local natural resource. You were forcibly expelled and evicted uh, and excluded from nature. As time went on, that became ratified by a new kind of profession of land surveyors and lawyers, and suddenly the land became a commodity and not a resource. It it became more of an investment. But these days, we've just been born into a climate where effectively we've forgotten what we've lost. You know, if you went to a country such as Estonia or Scotland or Sweden or Norway, places where they do have the right to responsibly and peaceably access nature. And all of a sudden you decided to put the wire fence around uh, the river. There'd be a national outcry. But in England, we've been born with that fence around the river already raised. So like I said, we've forgotten what we've lost. Just quickly tell us why 1932 is significant. For some reason, a relatively small trespass seems to have caught the public consciousness. 400 kids walk up a hill in protest at the Duke of Devonshire banning effectively all of Manchester, Leeds, Bolton, Sheffield from these grouse moors. And they only really overspill that one solitary right of way that they did have access to. They only really jump over it for about 400 yards uh, until they're met with uh, pretty brutal violence from the gamekeepers and five of them are arrested. The very next week, 10,000 people gathered at Winnett's Pass in retributional protest at both the arrest and solidarity for the initial action. It really caught a zeitgeist. So England scores poorly. Yeah. In terms of the rest of the UK, then Scotland is the, is the star pupil. Certainly in terms of public access, due to the Land Reform Act in 2003, maybe the most radical right to roam legislation across Europe. It really is something special. Next, at number six, it's anxiety and agency, how to respond to eco-anxiety in the face of climate change. Now, I really, really like this episode. I think it was such an important episode to do because I think as parents, we think about this issue a lot. Young people have a lot of climate anxiety, totally understandable. And, and you know, one of the reasons I really like this episode is we touched on how it's really important not to minimise people's feelings about the climate crisis because it is a rational response to what's going on. Yeah, and and actually, 
anxiety might not even be the best word for it because you know, often that is about putting undue weight on things that might never happen versus the climate yeah. crisis where yeah. like destruction's inevitable yeah. unless we act. And our final guest from that show, Sasha Wright, who works at the youth nonprofit organisation Force of Nature, told us about how to use our eco-anxiety to drive action and also encourage politicians to talk about the climate crisis in a more human way. I think she said we should show our eco-emotion. I'm all for showing emotions, eco-emotions. Yeah. You're good at showing emotions. Probably, yeah, I need to suppress some of them, I think. It it was quite a heavy episode in some ways because it sits at the intersection of mental health and the climate crisis. But we thought Sasha was such an optimistic voice on this. Is there something that could be happening from the top down at, at government level in policy? In policy is an interesting question. We work largely with educators because the big question that we often have coming to us is, I want to teach my students about the climate crisis because I think it's really important. And yet when I teach them about it, what I fear is that I'm disempowering them or pushing them towards this kind of uh, despair. So with educators, it's really about um, effective communication with those problems and with the knowledge that they're trying to imbue. From the perspective of policy, I recently went to COP26 and I was lucky enough to be in a few different spaces, including the blue zone where the main conversations were happening. And what was so stark to me was out in the streets and in various community hubs amongst the activists, there was incredible energy and raw emotion. And then you would step into the blue zone and you would see these politicians who were completely buttoned up, strutting around, um, and all of them had an agenda as, you know, you do when you're a politician. Sorry, Ed. <laughs> no, 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 um, I understand. <laughs> I, was, I, I had the same experience going into the blue zone. Yeah, It yeah. resonated with me. Keep going. Yeah. And and it would be so sterile, the environment. It would feel like it was scrubbed of all of the color and emotion. There's anything I could say to politicians. It's, oh, my God, can you show a little bit of emotion, too? I think that having a little bit of vulnerability as a politician would be incredibly powerful for mitigating the stigma around talking about how climate change makes us feel. So I would really encourage people in the policy space, you know, have a little humanity, show your ego emotion. Do you hear that, Ed? She's talking to you. Okay, we're into the big top five. The big top five. Yes. And um, coming in at number five, last month, we finally managed to incorporate your new obsession into the podcast, Pickleball. Yes. And Jennifer Lucor, who is a professional pickleball player. But I mean, like, I think she's the biggest sports star we've ever had on the um, podcast. Maybe Chris Boardman. She's, she's the yeah. current holder. Yeah. Yeah, of, of the crown. Yeah. Our crown, that is. The reason yeah. to be cheerful. Yeah. Biggest active sports personality. UK all-comers record. Yes, exactly. Yeah. She's author of a book. Yes. History of Pickleball. She is a Pickleball Hall of Famer. Yeah. And she told us about her journey into the sport. And, and in this episode, we found out that Pickleball isn't just a fad. It's the fastest growing sport in America. And almost 5 million people in the US are playing it. We also talked to some inspirational younger players here in the UK who mentioned that one of the best things about Pickleball is the fact that there are two age categories, over 19s and seniors if you're over 50. So, Jeff. One for me, one for you. Hmm. So I was about to say you and I were going to go on the seniors tour. I can't yet. I'm not 50. But you will be soon. (laughs) Anyway, let's hear from Jennifer. 
feel like we've gone too long, Jennifer, without asking you the very basic question, which is how do you play pickleball? How would you describe the game? How does it compare to tennis? And what this equipment do you need? Just give us some of the basics. Some of the basics. All right. It's on a small court, like a badminton size, right? Yeah. So you can get four pickleball courts on one tennis court. So you got kind of the visual. You got the lower net. You got a paddle, which is solid, like no strings. And then you have a wiffle ball. Uh, it's it's not actually a wiffle ball. It looks like one. So it's a ball with some holes in it. It's plastic. Um, and then you just serve underhand and away you go. And, and you it can bounce. Away. You're allowed to get it to bounce. Are you? Yep. We get it to bounce and you play it 11 points. Yep. And you can earn points when you're serving. Yep. And um, super, super fun. You know, depend. you know, whatever skill levels on the other side is how you're rolling. So you could... Go really fast or, you know, a nice slow game. So it's like half the size of a tennis court. Is that right? About half? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, what is it? 40 by 22. Right. And yeah. and it's with play with things that are like large versions of table tennis rackets, ping pong rackets. Yeah, yeah. it's a little, it's uh, almost like twice the size of a um, ping pong paddle. Right. And and then it's played with a wiffle ball. So that's and and and, and, you, and singles or doubles. It's not a team sport. It's singles or doubles. Yeah, or mixed doubles. Right. Got just kind of like tennis. And the history of it. Then I mean, you 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 literally wrote the book. What led to that decision? Is it not well documented? Is there a lot of misinformation, rumors, fake news? Yes, 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 yes. So as you know, you know, the internet tells all different kinds of uh, variations of everything. And um, because my parents have been playing so long, they actually knew a lot of the pioneers that got the sport going, because really the sport grew organically. It was growing and we thought, you know what, no one really has the stories of the pioneers and how we got all, how it got invented. So we were lucky enough to interview several of them. Because you guys probably know no one's getting younger, right? You got to document it while you still can. And if you were carving the uh, pickleball Mount Rushmore, who would be on there? Oh well, definitely the founders, right? So there's three families, um, three gentlemen that started pickleball. And again, this was off Seattle, um, the island of Bainbridge Island. So they had this little game they were doing, and um, of course, it wasn't named right away. And, of course, there was that dog named Pickles. And then would the dog's head also be on the Pickleball Mount Rushmore? Exactly. Dead center for sure. And this this is real. Uh, the game is named for a dog. Yes, that is real. Wow. And the dog was called Pickles. Yes. And Pickles would just chase the ball around. And then finally, like, you keep playing this activity that you've kind of invented, right? And you keep fine-tuning it. And they're like, we got to call it something. Pickles, pickle, pickles, ball, chases the ball. Pickleball. And, and and how did it go from there to being a sport played by upwards of 5 million people in the U.S.? You have your stats there. Yeah, we do. <laughs> You've been playing, right, Ed? No, I haven't. I'm desperate to. Never played. Oh, my gosh. I know it's terrible. I'm embarrassed, but I'm desperate to. You could have just said yes. I you know, hit it a couple of times and you yeah, said yeah. I wish that were true, but no, <laughs> I'm afraid not. <laughs> Now we're getting into the giddy heights. You can feel the altitude thinning out here. It's number four. It's from philanthropy to justice, how the rich can contribute to society with Gemma McGough. Tackling inequality has always been a theme on the podcast, but this year, this episode felt particularly relevant. We talk about ways in which the super wealthy are using their wealth in different ways to make society better and fairer. 
And the idea for this episode was sparked initially by a statement from an organisation called the Patriotic Millionaires, which lobbies for governments around the world to tax them more. And we spoke to one of the members, Gemma McGough, about what the group are asking for and what the reasoning is behind it. The group made headlines recently by, I believe, signing a letter, I think 150 people from around the world, connected to the World Economic Forum in Davos. What were you calling for? Wealth taxes. And this is wealth as opposed to income. Yeah, that's the big focus is to raise tax on wealth, not work. Where we see any negative feelings about the notion of wealth taxes is where people think, okay, it's going to impact me because as soon as I make any money, I'm going to be paying a higher rate of tax. And that's really not the case. Most people don't realise that you're paying a lower rate of uh, tax on you know, capital gains taxes, lower than income tax and so on. And so, and actually, there is a lot of headlines now on how billionaires are not paying any tax at all or like such low rates because they're not earning any you know, income in the conventional manner. We're trying to make it clear that what we're calling on is taxes that really only affect the super rich. I think it's 3.3 million or more uh, on an individual basis in the UK would be affected. So it's really, really like very wealthy people. One of the things Patriotic Millionaires talks about is the link between a just tax system, like the one you're describing, and rebuilding trusting government. Can you just talk to us about that idea? Explain the connection between those two things to us. There is a notion that money is a corrupting factor in politics. The very uh, wealthy that are now, you know, opted out of the social contract are using their money to buy privilege in government. And so with measures to reduce inequality, to revise the tax system, to make things a bit fairer, then hopefully uh, we'd reach the point where the very wealthy are you know, back part of the system. I think actually at the point that you no longer rely on the social contract, that's the point at which you are too wealthy when you no longer rely on a functioning society because you live completely outside of it. Then we've got a real problem on our hands. You're never going to have a completely even society. You need to have like a competition and the ability for people to raise themselves up. But we also need limits to make sure, okay, well, you've done really well, but now you know, the current system means that wealth continues to concentrate and you need to have some measures in place to stop that happening. Otherwise, uh, as we're seeing now, inequality gets worse and worse and worse and uh, money is concentrating in the hands of the few. You said that there's public support. What do you think the impact of the group has been? What's the sort of theory behind the group? The theory behind the group is that it's very easy for poor people to say tax the rich and uh, for the right wing to say, well, if you tax the rich, you know, they'll all leave and so on. And so for uh, the rich to actually be saying, yes, tax us, it you know, acts as a counterweight to that argument yeah. and helps people to see, OK, well, not everyone among the rich thinks that increased tax would be a disaster. We don't really expect any positive outcome from this government but we hope that we're laying the foundations for the future for improvements in the next government and so on. Very exciting. We are nearing the top of our chart. We are into the top three now. And in at number three, it was our first live show since the pandemic. Yes. Wasn't that fun? Yes. Uh, We were at King's Place in London. The smell of the grease paint. Yes. The roar of the crowd. Yes. Were neither of those things, but we enjoyed it anyway. We did, yeah. Um, Quite applause, actually. It was like cricket, cricket style applause. Um, And we we did the show around the time when the government was imploded. You'd you'd be a very good member of uh, a. Not an audience. What do they call it? A crowd? The spectators? Commentary. Have you been to to the cricket? Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Mm. 
So we did this live show around the time when the government was imploding. Uh, now, that doesn't narrow it down. So we'll say for the first time, about 10 days after Boris Johnson had resigned, and um, we convened what we called our Cabinet of Chaos. And we had a great panel um, with David Runciman, Rosie Carter, Pfizer Shaheen and David Gork to discuss what everyone thought about the leadership race and Johnson's resignation. And this was one of our most popular episodes from this year, and it was Great to be back out there meeting the fans. I had to leave because the queue of people that you managed to persuade to have selfies with you. Yeah, I had a friend waiting for me. The thing I um, feel about this clip is, is how long ago it all feels. We thought Boris Johnson represented rock bottom. Then along comes Liz Truss. Anyway, in this clip, David Runciman, professor of politics at the University of Cambridge, gives his prediction for how the leadership race will turn out. David, what have you made of the contest? And is the fever going to break? So, but, but, yeah. Well, partly on that thing. I mean, I, you know, I think um, on Johnson, COVID was really bad for him for the first of the qualities that you said. So he didn't actually believe it in the end. You know, he would still be yeah. prime minister if he hadn't thrown those parties. He, yeah. he just would. Yeah, he would. He's got a thumping majority. Yeah. But he threw those parties partly because in the end, he, he didn't believe what yeah. he had to say. Yeah. And that kind of gap opened up. And, you know, it's, it's been catastrophic for his relationship with his supporters. And you know, it's, whoever succeeds him has got to try and rebuild it. And it's hard to see how any of them can. I mean, what I make of it is that I think it's um, extremely enjoyable to watch and completely um, baffling. I mean, you know, if Pen- you know, Penny Morden, I don't think she is. So I follow this in the betting markets. But for a while, she was the hot favourite to win. And if she, you know, it's that, oh, if she is the answer... <laughs> it's a strange this is, this question. Is, this is a very peculiar but question. But you have a sort of thought that Kemi Badenoch might still... Well, it's, so this is a properly exciting contest in that I don't think anyone knows who's going to win. It's possible because Rishi Sunak, there's a big constituency of members of the Parliamentary Party and actually out in the country who don't want him to be Prime Minister. That in desperation, having realised, essentially, I think, that Liz Truss and Penny Morden, both of them are simply not up to it, that they turn to the one who really is the one they know nothing about. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. That could be bad not could be the next prime minister. It's very unlikely, but it's not impossible. And, and the debasement of politics that you talked about earlier, that you identified with Johnson as being sort of particularly unique, is that going to change? I mean, I know it depends on which candidate and all that, but is that going to change? So, the- so I just have one thought about this, which yes. is I know if you're Liz Truss or Penny Morden and people say you're not up to it, they think... Well, they said Margaret Thatcher wasn't up to it. You know, that's a big part of the Tory myth. And yet she turned out to be. But Margaret Thatcher was education secretary and she really struggled as education secretary. And she learned from that that she wasn't up to it. And she really had to change and be better briefed and better informed and so on. Penny Morden clearly was no good as Defence Secretary. Liz Truss was out of her depth as Justice Secretary. And no one cares. I mean, it's not as if they then think, right, I've got up my game. And part of this is to do with Boris Johnson, That's because I've not met a single person, David may tell me if I'm wrong, who thinks he was a good foreign secretary. Even he doesn't think <laughs> he was a good foreign secretary. His, his so he's lowered the bar. You're basically saying he's lowered the bar for who can so, be prime minister. Yeah, he, he was a terrible foreign secretary because he was unreliable, he didn't do the work, he yeah, was a liar, he was an egotist. And nobody seems to think that matters when he steps up to be prime minister. That's the difference between all of these people and Margaret Thatcher. She thought it mattered that she wasn't good enough and she had to be better. Liz Truss seems to think that having been terrible is a qualification for the job. <laughs> <laughs> Bailing upwards. And so this is part of the debasement of politics. 
Then, no, I, don't, I think Rishi Sunak's probably up to it, but you know, his two main rivals are not. Interesting. And one of them might be prime minister. Now we're into the top two. Dun, dun, dun. Wrong music. But anyway, at number two, controversially, it's breaking the mold. Ed and Jeff explore the hidden world of fungi with Fern Freud. Well, I, I want to say this was your idea. And I was a little sceptical. I think, yeah, are we too far off piece here? But it was such a cheerful episode. And we had some fantastic guests, including, I think, the, the only person in this rundown who gives Kingsmill Bond yes. a run for his money name-wise. Yes. Uh, Merlin Sheldrake. Completely right. Who is a mycologist. Yes. We're aspiring mycologists, aren't we? Yes. I'd, I'd say that I'm a well-wisher. Aspiring is doing a lot of work in that. <laughs> and David Arizzo, who is a scientist at Imperial, and he told us all about the potential applications of psilocybin on treating depression. Now, the person you'll hear in this clip is Fern Freud. Fern is a foraging guide and runs foraging walks. Fern told us about her journey into mushroom hunting. And actually, I then sent her a photo of a random fungus on my street, on a tree on my street. And she's blocked you? No. I think she gave us some Fern's feedback, Fern's fungi feedback. And as you will hear, we get pretty excited by the mushroom scavenging. Let's start with a bit about you. Talk to us about foraging for mushrooms and, and how you got into it. So I had a kind of sketchy path into the mushroom world. My dad, when we were very young, I'd say I was probably about 10, decided that his new hobby was mushroom hunting. So he he collected up the kids, he sent us off to the woods and he basically said, right, put one of every kind of mushroom you see into this basket. So we did that. And then we got home with a full basket of mushrooms. And he said, okay, I've got some books. So go through the books. And if you think you found an edible one, put it in this basket. And then he, you know, we diligently kind of did our mushroom duties. He went off to the kitchen and then came out with a very suspicious bowl of mushroom risotto, which he then proceeded to try and feed us all. And I was the oldest. <laughs> I was the oldest child. So I was like, don't eat it, guys. Definitely don't. I'm sure mum said something about mushrooms being really dangerous. So none of us ate it apart from dad, who was thankfully okay. From then on, dad wanted to keep doing mushroom hunting. I was the sensible child that, you know, kind of had to join in and learn about how to keep us all safe. And then it's just gone on from there. It just sparked such a passion. We started learning as a family and now I run uh, guided foraging walks and do kind of online guides and advice for people who want to get into foraging and foraging for mushrooms. It is. I mean, I'm going to sort of reveal myself as a complete sort of um, philistine here, if that's the right word. I suppose I was always taught as a child, like, if you see a mushroom or anything in the woods, you know, it's really dangerous and it'll poison you and all of that. Talk to us about that aspect of this. Definitely. I mean, in the UK especially, we are like a nation of mycophobes. Like, we are so scared of mushrooms. And mushroom hunting really isn't kind of ingrained in our culture. But, you know, in places like Italy and Poland and Russia, foraging for mushrooms is just like a, a family activity. So people, you know, their summer holidays, they'll go out, they'll pick mushrooms, and there is a lot less fear. But having said that, the fear isn't completely unfounded. You know, we do have deadly mushrooms in the UK. 
that I see on almost every walk I go on. So having that fear of mushrooms is is a sensible thing because it stops you from just eating whatever's there. <laughs> okay, now I've got a question. This has gr- is growing on my screen. <laughs> he wants to know, can he eat it? If he eats that, will he lose wanna... his mind? Will he be running naked around Doncaster Great, North? Okay. I mean, it is an absolutely enormous mushroom that has grown on a tree it was it was seen smoking by a friend of mine recently i mean not smoking as in having a fag uh, but i mean it was like in the heat it was like smoke or something was coming oh off right it. that must be the spores yeah i'm gonna kind of try and have a look so i can see if i can help you with your mushroom request you know all throughout mushroom season i receive so many blurry pictures of the top of a mushroom <laughs> and people saying can i eat this but actually you know it's a real study you need to look at um um, the, the porous underside or the gills, you need to look at the cap, you need to know what tree it's growing under. You know, there are so many things. As a mushroom hunter, you almost become this little detective and you need as many clues as possible. And sometimes a blurry picture of a mushroom will not cut it. Fair enough. <laughs> I still don't think you're at a stage where you can just go helping yourself to mushrooms without consulting Fern first. Though. I think it's true. If we are in France, I could go to a chemist. Yes, of course. That was a great yeah. fact that we learned on that episode, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Well, the suspense is killing everybody, I think. Here yeah. we are about to announce uh, number one moment from this year's Reasons to be Cheerful. And at number one, this year's top episode is episode... 262, What Just Happened with Marina Hyde? And we were so delighted to have Marina on the show for our fifth anniversary episode. She is a fantastic columnist for The Guardian. She just writes like a dream. And she was as good, if not better, in person. And we were so delighted to have her on. That was the thing. I I read her columns avidly. And um, she's so acerbic and so sharp. You think, what's she going to be like in real life? Well, here's the answer. Couldn't be warmer. A warm, but yeah, also acerbic and sharp. Well, she's really, you know, she's obviously like really funny and sharp in that way. But just the warmest person as well. Completely. Which was was just a a delight. It was so fun to talk to her. Completely. And she she doesn't do that many media appearances. So we were lucky to have her on the show. And she talks to us here. And I was so interested in this because she's so prolific and how she manages to be that prolific and maintain such a high quality is a mystery to me. Uh, She talked to us here about the process of writing her columns and have a listen to this. And then if you didn't hear the episode, go back and listen to it because it's really good. How much chiselling goes into a bit of writing like that or does it come to you in a flash? No, no, I do them all in the morning. I just get up in the morning and do them the columns relatively quickly like in a so an analogy like that is just it's just they're fully formed i will normally go to google image this is inside the actor's <laughs> no, this, this is interesting i will go to google images and i would look at the the most recent pictures and try and let my eyes go a little bit funny and think oh you know theresa may looks like a quentin break drawing of an unraveling postmistress <laughs> or something you know when and I, I just look at the most recent pictures sometimes of them at the dispatch box sometimes of them just walking around how did you discover that you had that ability because i think we've hit upon the thing that i find most extraordinary about your writing which is you conjure these metaphors these thoughts which seem so apt and yet so kind of outlandish well the thing is ed i often don't know about the obscure thing this could be compared with that happened in eg a back room in westminster in 1978 so i always have to think 
okay, I'm just watching it at home on telly like the rest of people. So what does this face remind me of? So rather than having to kind of delve back into political history and explain things that way, although I do sometimes do that, in general, I really try and be a friend to the reader and I try and I watch it at home the same as them. I don't try and think what they might be thinking, but something to amuse them rather than to say, look, I'm really clever. I happen to know this. But like the turn of phrase and the analogies, I mean, it's the, the sharpness with which you're able to. Are you like that in normal them? life? I don't like know. with your family. I suppose we, I mean, I try, I try and have a laugh head. But you see, I've done all these things quite early in the morning, written these columns. So by that stage, I've cathartically worked through whatever latest piece of chaos. In a way, it's your way of getting out your rage at the It's been times. very, I have not got unresolved news issues in a way. Because I, <laughs> but therapists tell you to write everything down, don't they? So I really do. Just, so you're journaling. You know, I'm essentially journal. I'm journaling. Gwyneth, Gwyneth would be a fan Yeah, of she'd be a huge fan. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm journaling our latest descent, and then when you've actually, you know, there's some there is something quite therapeutic also about trying to think of the joke because in a way, um, stating what's happened or offering a commentary on it, there's a bit more of a an exercise to having to go through something and try and work out what the joke or a suitable enough joke about it would be. So I do think that's quite um, cathartic and therapeutic, and it does help me. Uh, other people's many other people's brilliant jokes have helped. And their satire have helped me throughout my life. So I I just try and do a teeny little bit back. A worthy number one, don't you think? Totally worthy. I mean, obviously, you know, I think Kings Mill and all the other entries were were worthy competitors. But you're saying they're all winners. Is that, is that what you're saying? Everyone's a winner, a reason to be cheerful. But Marina is a worthy number one. Absolutely. We should mention that we'd love to hear from you. We've got a, another year. We yeah. the Clock yeah. strikes midnight, and then yeah. we're into another year of reasons to be cheerful. You will be hearing from me, actually. What, at midnight? No, you said you'd love to hear from me. Trevor, you came here on Christmas Day one year. You're ignoring my witticism. You said we'd love to hear from you. It was you. barely perceptible. <laughs> <laughs> we'd love to hear from our listeners, yes? Yes, yes, we would, yeah. Yes, yeah yes, I was talking yes, directly yes. to them. Yes. Um, here. Uh, so we got another year. Yes. Another year's worth of episodes. We'd like, we'd like good ideas, mm-hmm. good feedback. We've read out a little bit less listener content in the last few weeks, but we've had some really great listener content. Maybe we'll read it in the new year, so don't think your email hasn't been read and appreciated. And have you heard anybody you think, oh, I'd love to hear Ed and Jeff talk to them. You know, if you've got any... Uh, Definitely any, a subject that you think you've not yes. covered, even if we've covered it before in the last five years, and it's worth revisiting, things change. So, yeah, you can get in touch through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. And we've got some great things coming up. We do. Um, owning the Future. Tell, tell us about that. That's Matt Lawrence and Adrian Buller and their uh, book, first episode back in January. And we're going to be looking at topics like rethinking education, what happens when cities lose their nightlife, interviewing some great authors, journalists, and people with great ideas. Absolutely. And it's going to be fan dabby dozy. Keeping the crankies alive and well in 2023. Yes. Anything you want to say about theme tunes? <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> The polling seems to favour a, a continuity candidate. Late swing. Ed Seed. Late swing. Yes. yes. Let's Did leave it firmly in 2022. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thank you to you for listening. Thank you to everybody who appeared on the podcast this year. Our thanks to Emma Corsham, who has produced the audio for the for you week in, week out. Rachel Barmer, who not only curated this list, but was 
she's just been a revelation. She's been the she's been a revelation. addition to the team. So thanks to Rachel. The Treasury. I mean, look, you know, things went bad at the Treasury when Rachel left. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think how different it could have think how different it could have been for Quasi Quarting and Liz Trust if yeah, Rachel hadn't yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. The Treasury's losses podcasting's game. Exactly. And thanks to Joe Kenyon, uh, to Goldfish, and as ever, our announcer, Gail Lofthouse, Ed Seed, who can <laughs> pose the music and uh, we'll may that continue. We'll for some time to come. <laughs> uh, James Deacon, Never let it be said that we uh, wanted to change the music. <laughs> uh, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 2022. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.